Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Over the last four weeks, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has grown to be the largest land battle in Europe since World War II. The images of bombed out cities and bloody civilians show the real consequences of war. But war has become so much more than just boots on the ground. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we look at the present and future of warfare and international diplomacy. We'll hear from a New York Times reporter on the complicated history between Russia and Ukraine, and a look into South Korea and the rise of K-pop soft power. But first, what does war actually look like today? Michael Horowitz is the director of Perry World House and Richard Perry Professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He's author of The Diffusion of Military Power, Causes and Consequences for International Politics. Michael, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. You know, our society and pop culture have long been obsessed with movies and TV shows that depict war. I grew up watching MASH and thinking that that was an accurate depiction. And often we think of, you know, Vietnam and people being in the trenches across Europe. But international conflict today is quite different from those images that we in many ways glamorize about what's happening in war. For our listeners, what are some of the hallmarks of modern warfare and what are the things that you see in terms of tactics that continue? So I think it's really interesting the way that war is always changing yet is always the same. The the great 19th century Prussian theorist Clausewitz talked about the fog of war and the notion of war as a continuation of politics by other means. So in some ways, as long as there are people and we have trouble getting along and fight, there's an element of war that, that always in some ways looks the same. On the other hand, the, the way that battles are conducted and the way that military operations occur sort of tactically and operationally have shifted a great deal in the last few generations. You have the advent of, of precision guided munitions. I mean, I, I remember watching the footage of the, of the Persian Gulf War and watching CNN and seeing these, this footage of, of bombs, not just hitting a house, but hitting a particular window in a house. And of course, I mean, those weapons don't always function exactly the way that they, they're supposed to, but that's one enormous change. And then another large change over the last few decades has been the, the advent of cyber conflict and the way that, that countries use cyber attacks to try to not only shape the information environment in which a war occurs, but also to, to try to do damage themselves to whether it's to steal secrets, to, to create critical infrastructure challenges, et cetera. So a lot has changed. On the other hand, in Ukraine right now, there are a lot of people firing guns at each other and dying. I want to go back to something you just said about that longstanding tradition that centers on people. Because often I think people think of modern warfare and think that it's a bunch of people 
in front of a computer screen without realizing that there are still people on the ground involved in hand-to-hand conflict. And we're certainly seeing that in the images coming out of Ukraine. When we think about boots on the ground today, is it different from those past wars that we thought of? Or is it still about that armed conflict that has the potential to do tremendous damage during a conflict? That's a really great question. And I I think that a way to think about it is go back to kind of the period between World War I and World War II. And when you had the tank and the airplane and the radio and the truck all sort of come online as, as features of warfare. And it led to the creation of what people called combined arms warfare. And the way that I would probably describe at least modern conventional warfare is that it's not like anything's been taken away, but there are lots of things that have been added. And so you do have your warriors behind a keyboard, whether they're piloting a drone or they're they're tra- they're looking at satellite footage to try to to try to help maybe soldiers on the ground get from point A to to point B more effectively, and then of course you have you have soldiers in aircraft and and in in armored vehicles, but there are also still boots on the ground. So the 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 transformation here has not been to get rid of the soldier on the ground firing the weapon but to add on to it as technological sophistication has enabled sort of new new layers on the battlefield. That technology is key to expanding the suite of tools that a country has at its disposal, whether that tool is diplomacy or that tool is the kind of conflict that we've just been talking about. But one of the things that we know from history, Michael, is that for all of the advancements that we see in the United States, Sometimes it seems like the U.S. military is a little slower to adopt technology compared to other countries. Do you think that the United States has lost its military edge or do we need to think more broadly about the suite of tools that we can deploy and also why we deploy particular tools? One way to think about this for the United States today is that the United States is the world's leading military. And and because we're a democracy and, and we have a free press and thank goodness we have all of those things, the we are also way more open about our military and its struggles than a lot of other countries are. And so when when the US military struggles on the ground somewhere, whether it's you know Iraq or Afghanistan or someplace else, we we find out in a way that that other countries may may not. But the challenge for the United States is that when you're the world's leading military, when you have the most sophisticated technology, when you have really highly trained troops or bring that all together in operational concepts that are supposed to help you succeed, that it can be it can make it harder to innovate because every day you look in the mirror and you're like, I look great. And the the challenge for for leading militaries throughout history, not just the United States today, is that they can end up being a little too complacent and sort of rest on their laurels a bit. And to be fair, I think that the U.S. military recognizes that risk better than probably any military we have documentation for in history. And recognition of that risk, even at very senior levels, you know, by senior leaders, doesn't necessarily mean that those challenges are being addressed as quickly as possible when it comes to how we integrate cyber, AI, robotics, you know, other sorts of emerging technologies into the military. In the U.S., we often think of war and conflict as something that happens over there, right? It's far away from us. We don't have to worry about it in our daily lives. 
But with the increase of cyber attacks and AI and disinformation, it's really bringing it to our doorsteps in our homes, through our computers. We've seen it through elections, the impact of that disinformation. We've seen it in the financial industry. And there seem to be incentives because other countries want to be able to chip away at U.S. dominance. What makes these attacks so common and why are they now so appealing to our foreign adversaries? Well, think about it a little bit the way you you think about we think about comparative advantage and you know doing what you might be relatively best at. And in this context, most countries don't want to challenge the American military because while while the US military can be a little slow sometimes as as I described before, it's the best in the world. And so if you want to confront the United States, The last place you'd actually wish to do that is on an open battlefield. And so other countries find alternative ways of confronting the United States. These these things can be really challenging, I think, because, you know, the September 11th attacks, for example, this this horrible attack on on American soil that leaves thousands of people dead. We saw the planes hit the towers. We saw the plane hit the Pentagon. It, It was there was a visceral reaction to that. Cyber attacks, disinformation, I think sometimes feel differently because you can't, it's not like someone's firing a bullet at at the United States. Instead, they're using Twitter, they're using information, they're using Facebook, or they're behind the scenes trying to, to undermine infrastructure. And you can't see the threat in the same way, which I, I think in many ways, especially from a, for the public, makes it, it makes it psychologically a lot more challenging to deal with for very reasonable reasons. And it's hard to know who your enemy is when you can't see exactly where the attacks are coming or be able to predict that. But with all of our focus on the atrocities happening across Ukraine right now, what we haven't really talked about is the ways in which China is becoming more aggressive toward other countries. And so while the world is focused on Ukraine and Russia, and rightfully so, There's now this growing fear of how China could also mobilize its interests to the detriment of other countries and to the world. When you look at these two countries of Russia and China, do you see one as being more of a threat to the sovereignty of the United States? Or should we be looking at them in tandem in terms of thinking about the future of the U.S.? Wow, that's a really hard question. And in part because the challenges that they present are related because Russia and China are cooperating in many ways, but also distinct in that Russia is much more of a disruptive threat, I think, to the global order in that you know, Russia's economy, and, and even before sanctions and the response to their invasion of Ukraine, their economy was in a lot of trouble. You know, lots of things that, that we, we know over time are not necessarily great for, for future national power, although they do have a lot of nuclear weapons. Whereas the rise of China, I think, is probably the single biggest nation-state challenge to the United States that, that I've seen in my life. When you look at the rise of the Chinese economy and China's influence in emerging technology areas, as well as the growth and sophistication of the Chinese military and China's aim to to not just sort of disrupt and and maybe poke at the United States uh, and the West, but to change the rules of the game for themselves. That's a much more endemic challenge. And and one of the really interesting 
things, I think, in, in looking at, at U.S. foreign policy and national security is the way that while the rhetoric involving China has changed a bit in the transition between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, substantively, there's been a lot of continuity in treating China as a principal strategic competitor of the United States. And that, and that reflects in some ways in a, in a world of very polarized politics in the United States, a rare area of, of relatively bipartisan consensus. And I think we need to do more to lift up those areas of consensus because of the global threat that the United States face, but actually the world and many of our allies and the reality that China doesn't really care about partisanship when it comes to asserting its authority. As we look ahead to the future of all of this, are you hopeful that we can reach a place of sustained international peace, given the history, given where we are today? Or do you think that we should be preparing for more of these international conflicts that have consequences for the U.S.? I think it depends on what you mean by sustained international peace. From an American perspective, with the exception of 9-11, war has always seemed like it's over there. It's somewhere else. In the rest of the world, war never really went away. Think about the conflict in the former Yugoslavia in the, in the early mid-1990s. Think about the horrific set of wars in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in the, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, some of the conflicts that exist. You know, there, there have been conflicts in lots of different parts of the world that have killed hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people, and they're not, they're not here and so then thus sometimes we think, all right, well, the world's pretty peaceful, except for the places where the U.S. military is deployed. But the unfortunate reality is that as researched by some of my political science colleagues like Tanisha Fazal, Bear Bromuller and others have demonstrated, war never really went anywhere. And so I, while I'm an optimist in general, if the hope is for forever peace and stability in the world, then I, I unfortunately have um, some oceanfront property in Arizona for you as well. You are such a political scientist, right? We are eternal cynics, but I like to think of us as eternal realists when we're looking at that. Thinking about this as we, we come to a close in our time together, what do you see as the future of warfare? And what would you say to our listeners that they should consider? I think that the, the future of warfare is going to be even more complicated for the average person and that the addition of these 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 layers of, of war from cyber, from AI, robotics, means that the line between war and not war has often become blurred in a way that could be hard to hard to unstick. If if war doesn't just require a all right, we're gonna march our army out to fight somebody else's army on the battlefield. It means that you can have conflicts that are almost always going on or, or, never, or never going on. And there, there can be low level sorts of disputes that maybe used to be confined to the border areas between countries, but now can reach at home. And that is a less stable world in, in some ways and can be a disconcerting world in other ways, but it might be the reality. And, and, and I think that the, the outcome of the war between Russia and Ukraine may actually shape a lot of how this ends up playing out in that Russia's been arguably the primary instigator of international cyber conflict, whether you're talking about direct cyber attacks, disinformation, 
etc. So the result of this war and the way that the international community decides to, to respond to this challenge over time could, could end up playing a pretty important role in setting norms and, and, and guidance for, for how war will look in the years and decades ahead. Michael C. Horowitz is director of Perry World House and Richard Perry professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He's author of The Diffusion of Military Power, Causes and Consequences for International Politics. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. When we come back, how the Ukrainian invasion is strengthening Russia's ties to China, plus what the success of Parasite and Squid Games in the West means for South Korea. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. I want to establish the principles that I'll never violate as Ukraine's president and that the Ukrainian people would never accept. The federalization of Ukraine is impossible. Ukraine is a sovereign state. That was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky speaking through a translator at a 2019 peace treaty talk with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Just over two years later, Zelensky is fighting to keep that promise. This week, we're exploring the future of international warfare and diplomacy. Later, we'll hear from a political scientist on how South Korea is hoping to use the popularity of K-pop to create soft power internationally. But first, Ukraine has been embroiled in a military conflict with Russia since Russia besieged the Crimea Peninsula in 2014. Last month, that fighting escalated when Putin declared a special military operation to invade the former Soviet state. We wanted to understand more about the complicated history of Russia and Ukraine and what that history could tell us about the future of the conflict. Anton Tronovsky is the Russian bureau chief for the New York Times. While he normally reports from Moscow, Anton recently fled the country and joins us from Turkey. Anton, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. You know, we are now entering the fourth week of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And despite a very impressive army, many people have said that things remain at a stalemate. And to be honest, it can be difficult to really keep up with what's going on and to really understand where we should be focusing. Because with all of the media attention, there still seem to be difficult paths there. As someone who has been on the ground in Russia previously and reporting on this, what are the big storylines of this invasion that you're focused on? Well, I mean, the biggest one I think we all have to focus on is understanding what's going on on the ground. You know, Putin pretty clearly thought this was going to go quickly, uh, this war. It seems like really was confident that a good part of the Ukrainian army, army would lay down their arms rather than fight the Russians. That was clearly a catastrophic miscalculation. Putin. So what we're seeing now is is the, the the consequence of that. Putin can't back down, but his goals uh, of attaining some kind of political control over Ukraine uh, seem to be basically as far away. The second is, of course, what's happening inside Russia. Russia has seen a massive shock uh, politically morally, economically, 
with uh, the aftermath of the beginning of the war on February 24th. So how how the country and how the country's political elite, the economy, the public at large, the media response to all this is is a huge story. You know, one of the things that is also difficult for us to really fully grasp is what is the sentiment of people in Russia right now? Because at the beginning of the invasion, the thinking was that most people in Russia were not supportive of this and were concerned not just for the people in Ukraine, but what it could mean for them. And then last week, we saw Putin host this rally of over 200,000 people in Moscow. And so there is this question, is that just forced propaganda or is there really public support for this invasion what are you seeing on the ground there? And and what would you say that we internationally should take away from what's happening internally when it comes to public support? Propaganda, you know, plays a huge role and it becomes kind of difficult to say what is artificial support versus what is general uh, what is genuine support. So yes, going into the war before February 24th, it really did feel like if something happened, a lot of people would be against it. And going into the war, you could find very few Russians who could imagine a full-fledged war with Ukraine. It was just out of the realm of the possible for so many people, especially people who grew up in the Soviet Union when obviously Ukraine and Russia were part of the same country. What's changed since then is indeed a massive propaganda campaign along with an incredibly aggressive campaign by the Kremlin to stifle what remains of public dissent and what remains of the independent media in Russia. So there are ever fewer sources uh, for people to get uh, independent or critical information about what's going on. I think as a rule of thumb, you can say approximately half the country gets their main, um, has their main source of news as state television. And if you exclusively rely on state television, I think even if you were against the war beforehand, you know, if you see all day pictures of what they characterize as Ukrainian atrocities against uh, the civilian population, uh, Ukrainian Nazis, you know, as they call them on TV in Russia, the heroism of the Russian army that only attacks us, uh, military targets, etc. Then it becomes pretty easy to become in favor of the war. There is, though, a sizable number of Russians who are still against it. Um, and the question is, what happens to them in a society that is uh, in a political system that is ever less uh, accepting of, of that kind of dissent? You know, I imagine that when you're talking about war and this kind of conflict, that fear is evident, not just for the people in Ukraine, but also the people in Russia to see the leveling of a movie theater, to see a mall in Kiev get hit, to see all of these people who have been casualties of this war already, it also then becomes an internal question. And a lot of that fear has to do with the history, the, the historical relationship between Russia, Ukraine, and the people of Ukraine. How do you think the relationship has informed this invasion, but also what people are looking toward as being possible next steps? Yeah, that's a great question, because I think it's it's informed it obviously in so many ways. From the Ukrainian perspective, uh, you know, especially for people with 
a Ukrainian national identity, the Soviet Union was kind of a, almost a colonial um, power. It stifled the use of the Ukrainian language. It uh, saw, you know, Ukrainian national heroes and independence fighters as traitors to the motherland. So, so there was clearly, of course, a lot of enmity toward toward Moscow uh, in, in, in Ukraine, both during the Soviet time and, and after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. But there was still a ton of communication with Russia, economic partnership with Russia, cultural exchange with Russia. You can see that in the persona of President Zelensky himself, who, of course, before he became president, was a very successful Russian language comedian who really owed much of his success to the audience in Russia. So there was still a ton of, of, of cross-pollination there. Uh, from And then from the Russian perspective, so many people who live in Russia have personal family roots in Ukraine, have relatives in Ukraine. So, so when Putin says Ukrainians and Russians are one people, that is something that a lot of people in Russia and also some people in Ukraine would buy into. Of course, how do you go from that to saying we need to launch a war of aggression against our neighbor, you know, that's then a logical leap that I think still a lot of people can't really make. But then as to your question of what, of what happens next, um, uh, you know, now, of course, it's, it's hard to see. One of the main criticisms that people have of this war from some like from a conceptual political level is why would Putin do this if 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 the goal is to expand Russian influence and kind of build on the, this idea that Russians and Ukrainians are one people well then why would you go to war against them of course now the enmity that Ukrainians understandably feel toward Russians uh, will, will, will last potentially for generations. So at this point, I think it's very hard to say what does it all mean. You know, uh, does does that shared history count for something? I think increasingly less so, and it, and so it becomes so difficult to really see some kind of way out of this out of this situation. One of the other dimensions of that shared history that is front and center for many people is what's happening in former Soviet states like Latvia and Poland. And they've expressed concern that if Russia is doing this to Ukraine, perhaps we could be next. We've seen Putin threaten Poland in particular over their efforts to de-Russify, if you will. Should those citizens in Poland and Latvia be concerned that they may face a similar fate as the people of Ukraine? I think, uh, obviously, this is a very concerning moment for everyone. I think people, obviously, Latvia and Poland are members of NATO, very, very different from Ukraine. And I think if you listen to the Kremlin rhetoric, it is very different. You know, the way they talk about Ukraine is very different from the way they talk about Latvia or Poland. They talk about Latvia and Poland as countries that kind of rightfully should be allies of Russia, should be friendly of Russia, with Russia, and that the West is like using to try to weaken Russia. Whereas the way they talk about Ukraine is that it's not even a country and is rightfully a part of Russia. So those are two different things. And, and, and um, as I said at the beginning, I think one reason Putin did this was the expectation that the Ukrainians probably weren't even gonna put up a fight. Here, 
with Poland and Latvia, that would be very different because number one, of course, they're part of NATO. And number two, I think even in, in the Kremlin, people recognize that, that those countries have, have a very distinct national identity. But of course, the question of deterrence, the question of making it clear that NATO would fight for its allies, that's one that a lot of people are thinking about right now. And, and, and of course, one that the Biden administration and the Europeans are concerned about in, as they talk about sending even more troops as reassurance uh, measures to those countries. You know, some people have been surprised by China's role or shall we say lack of role in this making what would seem like conflicting comments based on the audience at hand. And even though the relationship between Russia and China has been tenuous, there are still implications for any sort of partnership between these two countries, particularly when you talk about the role of the U.S. and other allies and what they're doing in that. How do you see that relationship between China and Russia playing out here? Or do you think there will still be this continued not really sure where China stands? Well, I think it it is it is increasingly clear where China stands. I think China's you know getting ever closer to Russia, and clearly this war is is a shock. You know, it's a shock to the system everywhere, and, and so I think it's also a shock to 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 the Russia China relationship. But we haven't. You know, I think there can be some kind of wishful thinking in the West of people saying, "Oh well, this is this is too much for China, and they uh, are necessarily gonna gonna kind of step away here." I, 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 we haven't really seen hard evidence of that. I don't think, and we have seen for China the kind of fundamental thing here is increasingly becoming the confrontation with the U.S. and the West, and. Russia becomes an obvious ally there. The, the question, though, and, and, and where you are right, I think, in saying we, we don't we don't see where China stands is is on the economic question of how far are they going to go to help Russia alleviate the impact of sanctions. Um, you know, whether it's uh, by providing technology, banking services, becoming a customer for Russian goods that Russia is no longer able to export to the West. Those are all things where Russia really needs China right now, but where China would have to pay. Um, China would be taking risk, for example, by increasing its financial ties to Russia, because then those Chinese banks that do that could be vulnerable to Western sanctions themselves. And in the past, China uh, has been hesitant to provide uh, those kinds of services to Russia because they fear additional sanctions. So will they make financial sacrifices of their own to help Russia here. That's something actually that's worth watching very closely over the last years. I think kind of rhetorically, geopolitically, we're really seeing that Russia-China alliance, quasi-alliance, get tighter and tighter, and we're not seeing any evidence of, of it breaking up. But on the economic front, the strength of China's friendship with Russia is still, I think, up for uh, the jury's out on, on how strong it really is. Given that tenuous nature of Russia's economy, given the implications, not just for Russia and China, but really globally, because of all of the other countries that are connected to those economies as well, as we look forward, do you think that we should still consider Russia to be a superpower on the global stage? Or do you think that the consequences of this invasion may change that position? It is true that what a lot of 
the assumptions that people had about Russia's military, the strength of its conventional forces, um, that's been thrown into question by this invasion, for sure. Uh, you know, just looking at how kind of disjointed uh, the Russian attack has been and how many problems they've had. But look, they remain a nuclear superpower. Uh, that's not changing. And that, of course, is very much uh, been the determining factor in, in how uh, the West has, has reacted to this war. So they do continue to be a superpower in that, in that way. And in terms of this being, this war being kind of a new chapter in the crisis of Russian relations with the West, I think we're still at the beginning of that chapter. There's still so much that could happen. We still haven't seen all of Russia's responses and countermeasures in response to these Western sanctions. And I think Russia is going to be very keen to show the world that they still can have an impact, that they still can cause problems all over the world. You know, we haven't seen them really use their cyber capabilities, as we know. So I think there's still a lot that, that we could regional power or a power that's not all it's it's, it's as influential as it's cracked up to be i think uh, we're still going to see that play out i think i appreciate you for reminding us that we are just four weeks into this war and that we need to keep ever vigilant because of the, the future steps, but also the consequences. Anton Tronovsky is Moscow Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Anton, thank you so much and stay safe. Thank you. You can find links to Anton's reporting on our webpage. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. After the break, how the popularity of K-pop could be used for diplomacy. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we've been hearing about how countries use hard power and military force to get their way. But now we turn to a different approach. South Korea is no stranger to war and conflict. But for the last three decades, the Korean government has focused on using entertainment and culture to elevate its international image. Jenna Gibson is an expert on Korean entertainment and soft power. She's also a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Chicago. Jenna, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we are starting to hear this term soft power come up in public discourse, and it is no longer something that just political scientists and other nerds like us are aware of. And even though the public is hearing this term, they may not really be sure what it means. So let's start at the basics. What does the term soft power mean? So I think it's important to remember that when soft power became a thing, which was not that long ago, just a couple decades ago, it was really to open up the idea of what power is in international relations. Like you said, political scientists, international relations scholars, for them, power was hard power, right? There was no need to put hard in front of it because power was just assumed to be military power, economic power, basically coercive power. What can you do to make others do what you want them to do? 
So the idea of soft power came out of that. It came out of um, Dr. Joseph Nye saying, there has to be more than this. There can't just be coercive power in international relations. Can we come up with some, some term or some concept that's more about attraction? So it's the power of attraction. How can we get other countries or other you know, foreign publics to want what we want? to come along with us, to admire what we're doing. You know, we have different goals, political goals in the international, in the international system, but how can we achieve those goals without forcing others to come along with us? So that idea of using power to not just shape an image and influence of a country or a nation, but also to become more attractive to sell or promote a product, whatever that product is, if you will. And one of the things that we think about in this domain is the entertainment industry in Korea. Before the 1990s, because that seems to be the pivotal point for all of this, what did popular music and film look like? So you have to remember that um, Korea has only been uh, a democracy since basically the, the late 1980s. So there was a, a lot of censorship. There was um, a very different uh, entertainment industry in South Korea. Obviously, there were some some really amazing artists. There were some amazing you know filmmakers, whatever. But they were not really able to practice their craft. They were not really able to develop this you know very diverse and um, creative industry that we obviously see today. You start in the 1990s with kind of a fresh start, I guess, for the Korean entertainment industry and, you know, Korean democracy. And yeah, that is kind of where, where the story started there. So we see this burgeoning and flourishing of a democracy, this flourishing of an entertainment industry. And around the same time, South Korea's economy plummets, largely connected to this regional crash that was happening. And so the president at the time looks toward entertainment and culture as a way to bolster the economy, but to really invest in and develop this entertainment sector. And one of the terms that has come out of that is this term, how you, what does that term mean and how important was it to this economic recovery plan? Yeah, so what's really interesting is around 1994, you had the, the South Korean president actually explicitly saying, we need to turn this into an, um, an export industry. He saw, you know, other countries, namely the U.S., making a lot of money from some big movies at the time and started uh, the government's, you know, ministries related to culture and financial support related to culture um, in the mid-1990s. So then, like you said, when the IMF crisis happened, they really went in on that and in providing some of that financial backing to allow the creative industries, uh, mostly music, TV, to some extent movies, but mostly music and TV at first, to find audience abroad. They provided this kind of financial safety net to allow these companies to take their products that they were already making and find markets abroad. So the term Hallyu, though, is actually coming from China, interestingly. China was getting all these Korean products. They were having, you know, this new wave um, of Korean entertainment entering the Chinese market. And at first, it was actually a derogatory term. They were they called it the Korean wave, this wave of entertainment coming into China. And then it actually got co-opted and everyone said, yeah, it is a Korean wave. So that's what Hallyu means, Korean wave. And it's this wave of entertainment going across the world now at this point. 
you know, I am old enough to remember when Michael Jackson was welcomed into the Blue House by the president at the time. And it was seen as this international spectacle, but also this ability to promote culture in numerous ways to say, we too have a culture that we want other people to see and respect. And what better way to do it than by having this conversation with an international pop star like Michael Jackson. That happened in the mid late 1990s. And now since then, we have seen this staggering explosion of Korean media. You know, I have a teenager. So there's a lot of BTS in our household. That K-pop band brings in about $5 billion per year on their own to the economy. How important do you think that this sort of export of Korean entertainment has been to the country's economy and its international prominence? It's it's a huge deal. I mean, you you just cited the number just for BTS, and BTS is obviously the biggest um, boy band in the in the world at this point. And I think it's it's important to remember two things. The first thing is, interestingly, when you look at Hallyu, which we were just talking about, the Korean wave, you have things like K-pop, you have things like dramas, um, you know, Squid Game, obviously those kinds of things, movies, even things like K-beauty. But actually the biggest chunk, uh, the biggest money maker within Hallyu is video games. So even take that number that you just said for BTS, you know, add the rest of the K-pop industry. And that's not even the biggest part of the Korean wave economically. So this is a huge boon for the South Korean economy. Of course, it doesn't rival things like Samsung or Hyundai, um, you know, semiconductors, those kinds of things are always going to be bigger. But you have to look at the growth. You have to look at the fact that, you know, starting just two decades ago, three decades ago, there was zero export, right? So this this is a huge growth and it's just continuing to grow. So I, I expect it will just become even more of a, a benefit going into the future. You know, there's no question that there has been a tremendous economic impact here. And that economic impact has also raised the standing in a number of different dimensions, even as you mentioned, giving creators and creatives an international platform for their art. Some people have argued that this is a form of soft power because it has not only increased the prominence, but also has expanded the power when it comes to international diplomacy. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that the claim may be misstated or overstated when it comes to this power of culture? Yes and no. So I'm really focused on what we talked about at the beginning, the fact that soft power was meant to be kind of a parallel to hard power. It was meant to have a goal in international policy and in foreign policy. You know, how can you attract countries to go along with what you want them to do? How can you attract foreign publics to support a foreign policy goal that you might have? So when I have that in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, if Korea is trying to have soft power, if they're trying to use pop culture for soft power, there's a couple elements missing. What is the goal, right? So I think the problem is you hear the, this term soft power thrown around and you hear the the you know, people saying, oh, Korea has BTS, it has Parasite, it has Squid Game, therefore it has soft power. It's a little more complicated than that. There has to be some purpose to it. A lot of scholars actually call it soft power resources because it's potential soft power that it's there for you to use towards a specific goal. Now, the moments that I think South Korea used their soft power very smartly, very recently you saw BTS 
go with President Moon to the UN General Assembly. And they were uh, appointed as special envoy for South Korea. So they are now officially helping South Korea, you know, with its diplomacy abroad and getting attention from fans and non-fans alike to important goals like the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which was the purpose of that particular visit. And that worked really well for a couple reasons. First of all, BTS has spoken at the UN before that made total sense for them to be the ones chosen. And, and they connected it to President Moon's visit. And so that was a very specific moment, a very specific goal. And they chose the right kind of emissary at that moment. So those are the moments when I really say, okay, yes, Korea does have soft power and they are using it very smartly in those moments. You know, something that I'm hearing as a thread and what you've just said is there is this context between having the resources, the potential and a purpose and power to deploy it. And we often see that differently in the U.S., where some people are very critical of entertainers and influencers getting involved in anything political. But what you've just sort of traced is how, when it is purpose-driven, it can have this impact internally in a country, but also on a global stage. Do you think that those artists who are a part of this culture, do they face any particular sets of pressures? Is that playing out for these Korean artists as well? I can't speak too much for the the behind the scenes, although you did see with the previous administration a lot of issues with a, a blacklist of artists, for example, that did not agree with their policies. And that was just a very complicated administration in general ended up being impeached. And, you know, in that blacklist included people like Bong Joon-ho, who, you know, obviously won the Oscar for Parasite um, later on. That was the previous administration. It has gotten much better. But, you know, there there is a concern in general, not just in Korea. And of course, there's also concerns when you're wading into international politics that not every country and every public sees issues the same way. So you have you know plenty of examples of K-pop stars saying something that, you know, maybe worked in Korea or worked, you know, generally abroad, but did not work so much for Chinese fans, for example. So there are concerns about that. And it is an ethical concern in general when you have pop culture and government kind of coming together. But it seems so far they've been able to, to walk that line fairly well. I'm thinking about the rise of technology and media and how internet access has opened up so many different forms of culture that previously may have stayed within a country or within a community. And because those boundaries have now become so much more porous, there is even more of a delicate balance in terms of how artists think about their art, the message of their art but also the audience for their art. As you look ahead to um, sort of the future and, and thinking about the future of culture, prominence, and soft power, how important do you think internet and the technology associated with all of that will be to moving from this potential or this resource to the kind of enactment of power that we just discussed? Yeah, I think it's it's incredibly important, but it also comes with the caveats that we were just talking about. So on the on the positive side, we wouldn't have Hallyu the way it is now if we didn't have mostly YouTube to thank, 
you know, places like Twitter, places where, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we were able to stream concerts from Seoul. It's only become more important having these, these digital connections. And I see that really growing into the future. And K-pop is, has done a very good job in particular. And, you know, Korean dramas, obviously, we had, you know, several Korean dramas top the Netflix charts during this pandemic. So I, I think we're really on the cusp of like a, a very big growth for Korean entertainment abroad. But as we were just talking about, um, the problem with everything being accessible to everyone at all times and everything being screenshotable and shareable, I think we are going to see more and more issues with artists, actors, whoever. I do think we're going to see more and more backlash from different publics. If an artist says something, for example, about historical issues in Asia, that's going to be seen by audiences across the region immediately and shared very broadly. We saw this with the Olympics recently. There was a lot of issues between Korea and China in particular. And the leader of BTS got pulled into it um, briefly because he was cheering on some of the Korean skaters and Chinese netizens did not like that. So even these very small moments, I think these small moments will become bigger and bigger. And kind of the factionalization of the internet is only going to continue to grow. Jenna Gibson is a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Chicago. Jenna, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tolarski. Our interns are Michaela Savitt and Sarah Gasparato. You can listen to all of the episodes of Disrupted, and you can find us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening. Cause you're not let me know, just save me, save me. Save me, baby.